She has many names and many forms, but Lady Justice is one of the most famous sculptures in the world. Depicting Themis, the Greek goddess of law and justice, her statues are found outside of countless courts of law the world over. Lady Justice typically holds a sword in one hand, balanced scales in the other, and is blindfolded. The sword extols the rule of law and the authority of the state to prosecute lawbreakers. The scales depict impartiality in judgment. And the blindfold pictures the discharge of justice free of any influence beyond the dictates of law. A statute of Lady Justice is really an ideal symbol to erect outside a court of law. But you know we do not see them very often erected outside of a home. Take a man, for instance, who is an honest judge and a godly father. He relates to the defendants in his courtroom quite differently than he relates to his children in his home. To the defendant who stands trial, the judge puts on a blindfold, so to speak. His job is to operate within the guidelines of the law, to execute justice. He's no less just, no less faithful as he relates to his children in the home, but scales and blindfolds and swords, these are not fitting images of the relationship of a loving father to his children. In his home, he's dad. These are his children, his own flesh and blood. In the home, he administers justice, certainly. But this is a place of discipline and comfort, of repentance and mercy, of forgiveness, of playfulness and training and rebuke and correction and counsel and coaching, of laughter and of undying love. As a judge in his courtroom, he sentenced murderers to death row. Kidnappers to life in prison. He's fined many people guilty of various misdemeanors. But when his children disobey him, he relates to them in a profoundly different way. The image is not of blindfolds and swords and scales. The image here is of a loving father relating to his children. I'd like you to consider carefully this reality. It's a wonder. When we were born again, when God adopted us as His children as we placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, God became our Heavenly Father. We were adopted at that place as His children. And that relationship, God as our Father, we as His children, changes everything. And one of the things that it fundamentally changes is the nature of trials and suffering in this world. The difficulties that we face are transformed by that relationship. When I become a child of God through faith in Christ, all suffering becomes fatherly discipline. When I become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all suffering becomes fatherly discipline. Last week we looked at the truth that God providentially ordains our suffering and so governs every trial that we face that it contributes to our maturity and is intended to enhance our perception of His glory. Today what I'd like us to do is zoom in closer to this theme and consider the biblical revelation that for God's children, all suffering is heavenly discipline. Fatherly discipline. God's children suffer equally with the lost. And sometimes because we are God's children, we suffer even more. But because we are the children of God, our suffering is discipline and thus an evidence of divine favor, not of divine judgment. This theme of God's fatherly discipline flows through the Bible. It's found in His discipline of His children under the Old Covenant. And we notice under the Old Covenant that God indeed fathers Israel. To put it very basically, God fathers Israel. 
God as Father of Israel is, of course, a metaphor. God did not literally sire Israel. But the relationship of God to the nation that He chose as His treasured possession is rightly pictured in paternal terms. And these terms are highlighted throughout the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4, remember the whole situation with Israel and Egypt. God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my son. As you have a son, I have a son. My son is Israel. Let my people go. Hosea 11 and verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jeremiah 31 verse 9, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. We notice here there is indeed a connection between Israel's exodus from Egypt and God's relating to the nation as a father. That's a theme that plays itself out and there's a connection to the New Testament as we come to that later. But in the Old Testament, it becomes evident that this fatherly imagery intends to emphasize God's authority and Israel's responsibility to obey God. It emphasizes God's commitment to Israel and His orientation of protection and comfort, instruction and guidance and counsel toward His chosen people. In the other direction, it lays emphasis upon Israel's responsibility to obey God, to trust Him, to reverence Him, to prove loyal to God. They were His children. Anyone who has read the Old Testament with any level of discernment, you know intuitively that Israel failed her responsibility to God over and over again. And even God in His frustration at times announces the question, why will I continue with this people? But in that fatherly love, He always comes back to restore and to build up again the nation who constantly disobeys Him. And so we see that God fathers Israel, but we also see that God disciplines Israel. It follows naturally, and I'd like us to look at this theme in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is father to Israel, and God then disciplines Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The context here, Moses reiterates and summarizes the law of God, the guidelines of God's covenant with Israel, His holy nation, as the nation is poised for invasion on the borders of the promised land. Reminding Israel of her covenantal obligations to God, Moses instructs the nation in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8, "...the whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. This invasion of Canaan was no afterthought. It wasn't just a political move on Israel's part because it worked out. The invasion of Israel was something that had been in the plan for hundreds of years that God had announced and proclaimed. But it was His land to give. And it was His to judge the nations. But He brings His children through also their own trial, and that is this wilderness wandering Moses speaks to the nation for God, but remember that this is the second generation that has come to the border of the promised land. The first generation failed to honor God's Word, failed to trust God's purposes. And they had been led then in discipline to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that generation had died in the wilderness. But their children, the present generation, had to endure these same difficult days. Is that fair? 
What is God doing? Verse 2, the second half, that He might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. It's not as if God doesn't know what's in their heart, but He is alive and real in the moment, in time and space, working with His children to test and to discern their faith. Indeed, God did humble the nation through these trials. Verse 3, And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. One simple way of saying that in all of the trial, God continued to remain faithful to Israel during these difficulties. But all of it was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by the Word of God. He providentially led Israel to suffer the hardships of 40 years in the desert. No permanent place. It's sometimes days without water. At times, hungry going through difficulty and trial that's difficult for us to imagine in this modern world. But the older generation disobeyed God's Word and was punished for it. This generation, by being led through these very same trials, was led to learn that they needed to trust the Word and the promises of God. Now here's the point at hand, verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The wilderness wanderings were fatherly discipline. As her heavenly Father, God knew Israel had to learn to depend in submission upon Him, in obedience upon His every word, if she was ever going to conquer the promised land. This wasn't something that Israel could pull off on her own. This is something she was going to need to walk with God in faith and dependence. Israel had to learn that her freedom did not rest in her ability to exercise autonomous decisions. Her freedom was rooted in obeying God's will. So in the desert, God exercised the kind of discipline that faithful parents exercise when they insist that their children do hard things. It was through the hard experiences of the wilderness that Israel came to trust in God sufficiently to enter into the promised land and to continue walking with Him as she settled that land according to His will. That's what faithful parents do. They lead their children through various disciplines, thinking formatively and correctively, positively and negatively, leading them to do certain things such as cleaning up the bedroom and practicing music and mowing the lawn and taking responsibility for a failed responsibility, making things right with people, and these types of things that are just part of daily life. Godly parents discipline their children formatively teaching them what to do. And they discipline their children correctively, teaching them what not to do and how to make things right. Just as an earthly father does this with his children, so I have done this with you. To teach you what you need to learn. To nurture you and deepen you and develop you. I've told the story before, but of the son who stole a candy bar from the grocery store with some friends from school and became a kind of a folk hero because of it, telling the class. And the problem was that he knew the Lord and he knew that stealing was wrong. His conscience bothered him for a long period of time, and finally his father drew it out of him and he confessed his sin of having stolen a candy bar from the grocery store. He was so relieved, so happy that this was now over. The truth had come out. He'd unburdened his soul. But his dad said, it's not over. We're going to take a walk down to the grocer. 
and you're going to explain what you did. Well, that was horrifying to the very shy young man. But he did it. Now was he ever relieved. Now he had confessed his sin to the one that he'd stolen from and it was over, finally. No, said Dad. We're going to go talk to your class. We're perhaps mostly your friends, but where you too have been bragging about stealing. And you're going to confess your wrong before the class. And he did. Why would a father do that to his son? Why would he so humiliate him before his peers? Why would he make him so miserable as have to go to an adult grocer and confess his wrong there? Did he want to simply make him miserable? No, of course not. He wanted to teach him to love the truth and take responsibility for his sin. Why would we think God is any different? God wanted to teach Israel to obey His Word. And so He took Israel through thirst and through hunger and years in the desert in order to teach His children that they must depend upon Him. Now this isn't an actual son, but a nation. And there's much more involved here in God's providential dealings with the nation. But He wisely, as a loving Father, leads them through difficulties to teach them what they could learn no other way. Job's friend Eliphaz, you remember, did not get much right when he analyzed why Job was suffering. But one thing he did get right is found in chapter 5 where he says this, "...despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal." We see under the Old Covenant that Israel is God's Son. He loves His Son. He loves His nation. And so, because He is a loving Father, He disciplines that nation. Now, we take that theme with us to this side of the cross. Fatherly discipline under the New Covenant, we see again that God fathers those who have been born again. We're on this side of the cross. There is a new world now as we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, all that God had done with with Israel really found its fulfillment in Christ and in His payment for sin. But as we come to this side of the cross, as we have come to be born again by Christ, we realize that God relates to us as our Father. We are His children. Again, this is metaphorical. God does not father us physically. But on this side of the cross, the Bible even more pointedly stresses God's fatherly relationship to those who have come to saving faith in Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 draws this out. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If we have come to saving faith in Christ, there is an internal witness of the Spirit that is maybe seen in some senses subjective because it's personal, but it's very objective because it is from God Himself. The Spirit witnessing the fact that I do belong to God. I have become His child through faith in Christ as we see in John 1.12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This is our birthright. This is our heritage. We are adopted into His family. Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons now through faith in Christ, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. There's the witness of the Spirit that we are the children of God. So you are no longer a slave. That's not your status any longer. But now you're a son And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in Heaven. God fathers those who have been born again. This fatherly relationship is a proper metaphor of how God relates to us as His children. 
as is true then under the Old Covenant, so under the New Covenant, God not only fathers those who have been born again, but then obviously God disciplines those who have been born again. Here I'd like us to turn to that classic text in Hebrews 12, a text we need to know well as we endure suffering as God's people and under His providential assignment. Hebrews chapter 12. And we know as we enter into this book, we're reminded that Jesus never deceived His followers. He never claimed that following Him was a path to health, wealth, fame, and ease. You'll not find one word of that in Scripture. Rather, He said, Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Following Jesus is a one-way trip and it involves suffering. Following Jesus, you will not be popular in the eyes of the world. That's a guarantee. You will be misunderstood by the masses. You will be ridiculed. He's told us this. Our Lord and Master was crucified. This is not meant to be easy. Well, the recipients of Hebrews understood what it meant to follow Jesus. They understood what it meant to suffer with a finger there just to turn back momentarily to chapter 10 and verse 32. Now you read between the lines and fill in their life. How did it work? How did it go to follow Christ? Think of this. Put yourself in the scene. Hebrews 10 and verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Well, how are they to deal with their trial? Back to chapter 12, verse 1 and following. To these individuals who are facing this suffering, the author writes, after Hebrews 11 and this chapter of faith and the heroes of the faith, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these believers who have gone before and have suffered, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Whatever that is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's just stop there for a moment. Without lingering long over these verses, as profound as they are, suffice it to say here that the author points them backwards in time. Before you run from the faith, look to Jesus. As you deal with suffering, look to Christ. Consider your suffering Savior. You are His people. Live like it. And look back, not only to Jesus, there is also a great company of witnesses who have suffered for God through the ages. You are a part of their company as you suffer for Him. Remember them? Verse 33 of chapter 11. The great glorious triumph of these people of faith who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women receiving back their dead by resurrection. And then there's that other side. Some were tortured. 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. As verse 4 indicates, you have not suffered to that point. You have not suffered to the point of death. And there's a very important idea here, I guess as we would look at it, just the psychology of suffering that is so important. The author encourages his readers to adopt a specific perspective. Don't compare yourselves to those who suffer less but look to those who have suffered more and have endured. That's where your perspective should be. If only I had their children. If only I had her husband. If only we had his income. If only I was married like everyone else around me. If only I was as healthy as most people my age. If only things would go normally and right for us like they do for the neighbors. All wrong perspective. Look to those who have suffered more, he instructs them. And as we look to the Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, we learn there very pointedly that there is no trial that we will ever face that is unique. No trial is unique to us. Someone has endured more. And we learn there as well that no trial is insurmountable because it has been designed by God who as our Father is working through those circumstances to aid us through it. Look to those who have suffered more and endured to the glory of God. There was once a very poor man who said, I complained about having no shoes until I saw a man with no feet. The point is not to pity the man with no feet. The point is perspective. I want us to stop here before we enter into verse 5 and to think again about these readers. Their perspective needed to change. They needed to look to Christ. They needed to look to those who had gone before and had suffered for Christ and endured. Well, why was that? There was a problem that had developed in their thinking. They had begun to think that they had a simple choice to make. We can continue to stand for Christ and suffer, or if we will simply go back to Judaism and leave Christianity, we will not suffer. It's because we're standing for Christ that we're suffering. That's what's agitating our persecutors. If we'll just stop, they will stop. And our suffering will go away. And so their thinking revealed, as we think of this in terms of our series in Providence, their thinking revealed that they saw their persecutors as the primary cause of their suffering. If we quit trusting Christ, they will quit persecuting us. The author of Hebrews, a counselor who believed in the sovereignty of God and in His providential governance, writes to correct this false notion. Having exhorted them to look to Jesus and their heritage as the people of God, he now gets to this false thinking that our persecutors are the primary cause of our suffering. And if we'll just stop following Jesus, we'll stop suffering. Verse 5. And, I'm going to add this in addition to looking to Jesus, to looking to those in the past. I want you to get this. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. He quotes here Proverbs 3. You've forgotten something. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. You see, in the end, they were wrong. It was not their persecutors who were the primary cause of their suffering. The primary cause of their suffering was their Heavenly Father who orchestrates all and had led them through these trials to deepen them and build them. The primary reason they were suffering was that God was using this persecution to discipline them. If it wasn't persecution, it would be some other form of suffering that would be needed and would be helpful to them as His children. You have forgotten. You're God's children. And that changes everything. It changes the very meaning and nature of suffering. Verse 7, The truth of the matter is, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, it's not your persecutors who are running the universe. It's your Father who has providentially led you through these trials. When things do not go our way, how are we tempted to think, God does not love me. God has forgotten about me. God is not involved here. He must be busy elsewhere, but He certainly doesn't love me with an infinite perfect love. Look at the trial that I'm going through. This verse teaches us that such conclusions are exactly wrong. Suffering is one of the clearest evidences of God's love. Our Father loves us enough to train us by means of suffering. As we think of that in terms of God's providence, we understand this is only possible if He is absolutely sovereign and controls all things. Or there could be no such guarantee. And we think of it in terms of His fatherly love. All suffering is discipline because He does reign supreme and does govern all that we face. Let's contrast this for a moment with Hinduism and Buddhism. They teach the concept of karma, which speaks of a quality of life based wholly on how one lives. This isn't just the study of Hinduism and Buddhism for a moment, but there's a lot of this that creeps into Christian thinking as well. So follow me with this. They say that this idea of karma is that our lives are the outworking of an inflexible cause-effect moral order. In other words, your karma determines that you get exactly what you deserve, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So every evil deed is met with a directly corresponding consequence of suffering. Death itself cannot break this correspondence. People suffer bad karma in their next incarnation if they haven't suffered enough in this one. So they answer the question, why do some people, they live like everybody else, they're not particularly bad people, they're, they're good neighbors, but they suffer dramatically in ways that are far worse than anyone around them suffers. Why is that? The Hindu, the Buddhists will say, oh, you need to understand, they're working off bad karma from a previous life. Everything is perfectly equal, cause-effect. You suffer for what you've done wrong. Nothing more, nothing less. Anyone who believes in karma has never met Jesus Christ. The God of Scripture is a God of forgiveness, of grace, and of mercy. He specializes in giving us what we do not deserve. Karma speaks of strict, blind justice. And there are a lot of Christians who essentially agree with this way of thinking. They, they don't know it, but they really reflect these ideas. Something goes bad in someone's life and they jump to the conclusion that they must be in sin. 
God must be punishing that Christian. Now there's a number of reasons for suffering. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this is a conclusion we should be very careful about drawing. It's as if such Christians have never read the book of Job. That was precisely the wrong conclusion. That Job was being punished eye for eye, tooth for tooth, because of sin in his life. He had done something terribly bad, and that's why God came down with terrible suffering. Is that the conclusion? It's exactly wrong, as the book of Job brings out. Now, make no mistake, it is true, Galatians 6, that we reap what we sow as a general principle. But it is also true that our Heavenly Father forgives the repentant and extends grace to us. The discipline of God as our Father does not aim to even out bad karma through suffering. It aims to bring us to repentance and increase faith in our Heavenly Father. There's a relationship here between our suffering and our Father. All suffering, all trial is His discipline formatively and correctively to bring us to Himself. Divine discipline of God's children is not retributive. That is, it's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth punishment of wrongdoing. Rather, it is intended to deter disobedience, to solicit our repentance, and to produce holiness in us. It is meant to develop a relationship that could be developed no other way. As God knows it. Now, as I mentioned, there are different forms of divine discipline. We need to be aware of this. Not that we can always understand where we are and these categories overlap. They should make general sense. Sometimes we simply suffer the direct natural results of our sinful choices. In this case, we suffer as a wrongdoer. pastor who recently died of cirrhosis of the liver. No one ever knew that he was drunk every day of his life. They didn't know it. God's Word teaches us that we are not to be drunk with wine, which is excess. Here's a sinful choice made on a daily basis, and there's the suffering of direct consequences for such sin. Sometimes, at other times, we suffer God's direct discipline in a form that befits our sin as God sees it. We see a, an ideal example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. In that situation, there is a man who devastates a family, a man who seeks to create his own family in a godless way and then receives the judgment, the punishment, of trials in his family. God revealed that to him and it made sense. Thirdly, often we suffer as a test of faith and as training in obedience. And this is a common form of suffering. It's not a one-to-one correspondence with specific sin. All of us deserve to be judged eternally if we got what we deserve. But here it's not so much a response to sin in our life. It's simply God using trials to test our faith, to train us in obedience. This is Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I took you through hunger. I took you through thirst. I took you through the desert. Why? So that you would learn to heed My Word. Because I love you. This is Job. Not because of some specific sin in Job. He is led to lose all that he has that he might submit to the sovereignty of God in his life. This is Jesus, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, who learns obedience through what he suffers. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 again. The thorn in the flesh, three times asking it that it would be removed, and God says no. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then fourthly, sometimes we suffer persecution as a direct result of following Jesus Christ. Again, these categories may overlap at times, and they're not hard and fast, but there's different reasons for suffering, and we need to be careful not to conclude Someone is going through trial because of a specific sin in their life. We're not sure that's the case. God does not generally reveal that relationship. 
There's many reasons for his for suffering, but here's the key. If he is your father, it is all fatherly discipline. Not because of the kind of suffering, but because of your relationship with God. It's all transformed into fatherly discipline. And not necessarily because there is something you've done to quote-unquote deserve this particular discipline and trial, but simply because He's your Father and He loves you. In fact, verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If you had an earthly father who disciplined you, give thanks to God. In fact, if you have matured in your life, you do give thanks to God that there was someone in your life who stood up to you and said, this is what you need to do and this is what you must not do and corrected you and trained you. Thank God for that. But having said that, we also all realize even in maturity that no earthly father ever got it all right all the time. Fathers make mistakes. They do not always discipline their children in selfless and ideal ways. Sometimes their discipline is sinful itself. But Christian, we can know this. God always disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. I can rest in every trial that that's the truth. This will be because I'm related to God as my Father. This will be for my good. And this will produce holiness. Christian, no suffering in your life is ever the result of bad luck or blind chance or bad karma. It's never the result of people who are bigger than God. Ever. Any trial that God ordains, no matter how evil the secondary causes who may have been involved, you can rest assured that trial is ultimately for your good. It is designed to produce holiness, and by God's grace it will accomplish exactly what God intends. So look at your life and say, what is it that I despise? What is it that I want changed? What is it that I wish never had happened? And know that if the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, that trial is meant for good. It is fatherly discipline. doesn't mean it's easy. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, whether in this life or the next. But trials are trials, and suffering hurts, and tears are right, and frustrations are real. But we need to take the long look. Suffering trains us to bear the fruits of righteousness. And the more we mature in the faith, the more we come to embrace God's agenda in our lives, the more we can rejoice in what He ordains. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis wrote wisely, we may wish that we were of so little account to God that He left us alone to follow our natural impulses. That He would give over trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But once again, we are asking not for more love, but for less. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Or in the theme of this day, we could say, would cease to be our Father. Rather than wishing away our own maturity, we should respond to suffering with courage, knowing that all suffering is discipline, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
therefore, that is the preceding discussion demands a response. The picture here with drooping hands and weak knees is of a discouraged, exhausted athlete or warrior. And the challenge here is be strengthened by this truth that all suffering is divine discipline. That God is for you in all of it and loves you in all of it. Look to the past to those who have gone in the faith and have suffered for Christ and endured, and look to Jesus Himself who despised the shame. Don't be weak in heart and spirit. Strengthen your flagging faith in God by trusting Him and being faithful. Our lame, hobbled walk should be strengthened by a confidence in the providence of our loving Father. What do we take from this reality. We need to leave here today remembering and knowing that knowing Christ is no free pass to escape suffering. Anybody who says, why should I suffer like this? I am faithful to God is missing it entirely. As if being related to God means somehow that we get a free pass and escape suffering. No. There certainly are forms of suffering that we will not experience because we honor God's will. But Christians suffer just like everyone else and sometimes even more because we're Christians. It's not a free pass. But secondly, knowing Jesus changes everything. It's our relationship to God that changes all suffering. For the believer in Christ's death and resurrection, discipline is not judgment. Jesus Christ has paid the full penalty of our sin, past, present, and future. He has borne that pain for us. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ because He fulfilled that condemnation. Thirdly, for the genuine believer, suffering then is fatherly discipline. And it is always fatherly discipline. The only way we can have confidence in this truth, again, is if God is sovereign. If we know, as the Scripture teaches, that He governs all things and directs them for ultimate purposes. But armed with that knowledge, I can know that God loves me infinitely and that there will be nothing that touches me that is not His discipline for my life, formatively or correctively for good. And let me add as well, number four, that Jesus is intimately aware of our suffering. He intercedes on our behalf. Romans chapter 8. He is praying that our trials produce faith and disciplines us unto godliness. God too weeps in the midst of our trials. Let me speak then finally to someone here, anybody here, where the Spirit of God is not witnessing to your spirit that I belong to Christ. That I am indeed a child of God. I have a strong sense of it. A strong witness of it. Not simply that I am following the, the laws of Christianity. I'm following the rituals and the rules. No. That there is a living relationship between you and God through Christ. If you don't have that sense, I plead with you to be aware that you're headed toward an eternity in which God, as it were, will stand as Lady Justice. You'll enter into eternity and your sins will be placed on the scale and His eyes will be blindfolded to the work of Christ and His sword will flash in judgment. This the Word of God teaches. The books will be opened and your sins will be weighed and you will be found wanting. You will be found deficient. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result will be an eternity based on your own deeds which fall infinitely short of God's standard. And you will be separated from God through His judgment. As you think of that picture of going into the presence of God and facing Him as your judge, 
your perfect, sinless, absolutely holy judge. Think of that picture compared to entering into eternity and meeting God as your Father. Receive Christ today. Become God's adopted child through faith in Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection. As God enables you to do this, you will not escape suffering. This is no offer for health, wealth, ease, popularity, and success. But you will escape divine wrath. You will escape the judge and you will enter into eternity meeting your Father. Never in this life or the next will you ever regret trusting Christ and entering into a relationship with God who as our Father disciplines, but who has borne the wrath against our sin, providing forgiveness and mercy and grace to those who come. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we rejoice in Your kindness to us in Christ, in the mercies that You bring about in our life. We praise You, Father, for Your goodness to us in Jesus. We rejoice that You are our Father. And because You sovereignly rule over heaven and earth, we know that in that relationship, every trial is Your purpose for us to grow. I pray for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior and that You'll draw them to that relationship today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.